Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 27th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Throughout this pandemic, two things have been prioritised above all else. Protecting the vulnerable from death. Getting our children back to school. What we have learned is if that both are to be achieved... Something, in some sense, has to give. Because we have to sustain pressure on this virus. We have to reduce transmission at community level in order to lower the risk to those older and vulnerable people and to maintain an environment in which our children can continue to attend school. So, how do we do that? The only way to do that is that the adults separate themselves enough to drive transmission downwards. But we do have to live, don't we? We've been locked down for far too long. So what is more important? Are children back at school or the nightclubs and the bars open? Big decisions. I think these are decisions that uh, we have to make in coming into the winter months. These are trade-offs. There are no easy answers. And it would be very easy to sit here with Dr. Tedros and say, you can do this and this and this and this. Unfortunately, sometimes when you do this, you can't do the other thing. You have to make those decisions. So I do think there's a time for decision-making coming as the season grows into the winter months for many, many countries. That's Dr. Mike Ryan Ryan. of the World Health Organization. Let's speak uh, to Porik Cribben, who's uh, the Chief Executive of uh, the Vintners Federation of Ireland. Good morning to you, Porik, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme here. The decision has been made to open bars and nightclubs from uh, the 22nd as such, but it's a decision that uh, is in the process of uh, being changed and uh, this morning on the 27th of October it, it seems as though there is still some confusion. We know that the objective is that there be electronic ticketing in order to gain entry to a lot of places and that you'll need to have those tickets an hour in advance uh, but there is some confusion, is there not? Yes, Michael, there's still quite a bit of confusion and bear in mind we're now five days since we opened uh, last Friday. Uh, and really what we've had since uh, Wednesday of last week is a pretty uh, shambolic uh, process. On Wednesday evening at, um, sorry, on Thursday evening at six o'clock at a meeting with senior officials, uh, we were told that ticketing would be a, a requirement, but there were a lot of other issues that were unclear. So there was a further meeting at seven o'clock on Thursday evening and at that meeting, we were told that no ticketing will not be required. 
So uh, uh, that meeting was finishing up at about 8 o'clock on, on Thursday evening. And I asked a question as to when the guidelines would actually be on the department's website because it's only when they're on their website that they're official. And I was told they would be there within a half an hour. Uh, that was on Thursday evening. Uh, and on Friday morning, they hadn't been on the website. So I, I made a call to be told there was an issue. Uh, and eventually at about 20 past five on Friday evening, uh, I was called to an emergency meeting where I was told that now ticketing will be required. Mm. But there was lots of questions cut and be answered about what kind of ticketing, how, how much in advance. Well, in actual fact, then we were told it needed to be 24 hours in advance and it would be needed for a lot of outlets that now it appears it's not needed for. So there's still a lot of uh, misgivings and a lot of clarity needed. And, and I should point out that at the end of the day, what publicans will be asked to comply with in law is not what I was told at a meeting, but in actual fact, what will be in the, the official regulation. And that regulation will not be in place until tomorrow, we believe. And, and members are being asked to comply with that from the time it's put in place, which is absolutely ridiculous. Right. And you don't know what that is, do you? We, we've been given an outline, but uh, in, in over the past 18 months, what we have seen on, on numerous occasions is that the detail in the regulation, when it comes back from the Attorney General's office, etc., is, is nuanced slightly differently to what you might have been told at a meeting. So I told the officials yesterday that I was giving no advice whatsoever to members until we saw the final regulation because it is the final regulation that they have to comply with in law. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's worth asking you how it will work in law. Uh, well, what we were told uh, was that, you know, the tickets have to be electronic. Mm. Uh, we were told... So you have to buy them on your phone, in other words. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. But we, I mean, th- there's a very simple question that we asked yesterday. Uh, it's fine if you have a nightclub that's opening as a nightclub at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. But there is a concept which is a late bar, mm. which operates as a normal bar during the day, mm. uh, into the evening. Yeah. And then they have a, a special exemption order that allows them to go late. Mm. But in a lot of cases, what happens there is I go out for a pint or two tonight. Uh, I meet somebody that I haven't met for the last two years. And oh, there's a late bar, so we'll stay for a few more. Mm. Uh, and um, the question we ask is, how has, will ticketing work in that respect? In other words, do we have to clear the premises mm. uh, and get people to come back in? And the answer we were given is that's for the sector to work out themselves. Right. So you'd have to at least check for tickets because people shouldn't be in there, even if they were in there. But when uh, it changes into a late bar, people shouldn't be in there without a, a ticket. And if they don't have a ticket and they do want to stay, I take it that you'd have to ask them to leave, to buy a ticket and leave, stand outside for an hour before they can come and, back and, in. And, there, and, and therein lies the other um, conundrum is that we have been informed that there can be no congregation at the entrance to venues, even though our members have no control over what happens in the public thoroughfare. And does that mean that people can't queue to get in? Well, uh, we asked that question and what was repeated to us was there can be no congregation at the entrance to venues. Mm. Now, uh, we're all adults. Uh, We know that if a venue is opening at, say, 10 o'clock, there is going to be queue outside because people will want to get to their favourite spots. They'll want to do whatever they want to do. 
and no publican has control of what happens on the public street. That's a matter for the Gardaí. But we are being told we cannot allow congregation outside. Right. So uh, it's it's really, uh, I've been involved in, 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 in a lot of stuff over the last, well, long number of years, but the last two years in particular, where there has been confusion and mixed messages. But this has been, uh, you know, the old saying, this one takes the biscuit. Does that mean that people wouldn't be able to go out for a smoke at the front door? Hadn't thought about that, to be honest with you. Uh, but um, um, it would suggest that, you know, if there can't be congregation, uh, certainly more than one person can't go out for a smoke at the front door. Okay. Uh, what if uh, there's a bus uh, in some rural areas? I'm sure there'd be buses picking people up. Uh, I take it the bus would have to stop somewhere else other than outside the front of the end, uh, of the premises. Well, this is where it all makes no sense, Michael. Uh, you know, where it's... Uh, and, and the problem that arises is when, when regulations don't make sense, uh, it's almost impossible, not alone to get the proprietor to comply with them, but, but to get the public to mm. comply with them. Uh, and you know, for you know, what, when regulations are reasonable, they're sensible, and they're, and they're understandable, people, by and large, will comply. You'll always get the awkward mm. customer uh, who, who, who doesn't want to comply, but by and large, people will comply. When they're unclear, make no sense, uh, then uh, the people with common sense will disregard them. So, just to go back over what we do now at this stage, you won't need a ticket to go to a pub, will you? You won't need a ticket to go to a pub. The, the only instance in where tickets will be needed is where there is dancing. Okay, so if there's a band playing in the pub, uh, no tickets are required if there's no dancing. So what, happen- what, what happens if somebody gets up to dance? You'll, 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 you'll uh, politely ask them to uh, desist. Right. Or to leave, I suppose. Or to leave, yeah. yeah. Okay, because they can't dance, uh, in other words. That's the... Absolutely. You, if, if, if there is dancing, ticketing is required. Okay. So you can allow the dancing if there's tickets. If there aren't tickets, you can't allow the dancing. And as part of the tickets, you have to have a, a COVID cert to buy a ticket, do you? No, the COVID cert, the, the COVID cert is, is, is different. You still have to check for the COVID cert at entrance. Right. You see, the strange... The reason... The ticketing we are being told uh, has been put in place is to make sure that there's contact tracing details available. So you've got a phone well, number, some contacts. Yeah, but mm. you've got to do that anyway. You've got to do that under the regulations that are there today. You've got to get the COVID cert, you've got to check the COVID cert, and you've got to get contact tracing um, contact tracing details as well. Right. So it, it beggars belief as to why it has been put in place uh, in, in the first place. And now most of these outlets, the vast, vast majority of these outlets do not have ticketing systems. As a matter of fact, uh, most of them don't actually charge in. Mm. So uh, what they're being asked to do is to have a ticketing system ready yeah. to, to collect information that we don't know until we get the regulation exactly what it will be. Right. To have that ticketing system ready uh, to go in place immediately. Now we've asked for mm. um, a, a two-week moratorium to give people the opportunity uh, to, to get ticketing systems in place because I spent most of the weekend talking to ticketing companies. All right. Uh, and uh, while some have have um, uh, systems that can be put in place pretty quickly, the vast majority of, the, of, of, of them uh, say that, you know, to, to put these things in place, you'll need a period of time. You will also need specific, in some instances, 
you need specific scanners mm. that are not in um, uh, great supply and have to come from the Far East. Okay. Right. Uh, I was going to ask you how you get a ticketing system, um, but you can't just sell tickets through Facebook or something like that. No, no. Right. It, 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 and it, it has to be a considerably more controlled than that kind of approach. Right. What about a 17-year-old buys a ticket? Um, are they entitled to entry? Uh, no. Uh, and, and the problem, I mean, there are also situations where people, for a very good reason, are barred from premises. Uh, and if they buy a ticket online, you now have a situation where they can rack up to the door and say, I have a contract with you. Uh, and um, even though the 17-year-old um, is, is um, or the 16-year-old or whatever, uh, if they have a ticket, obviously you still have to check in those instances for um, a proof of age. So you now have a situation where you've got to check the COVID ID, you've got to check the... Um, uh, you have to verify the, the COVID ID. Mm. You've got to get contact tracing. You've got to have a ticket, and if you're dubious about the age, you've got to you've got to get proof of age. And you'd have to close the ticketing system down at a, a certain time. Is that complicated? Because uh, I mean, you'd have to make sure that I couldn't buy a, a ticket at half one if the place was going to close at two. That 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 is absolutely correct. Uh, and while you're doing all of that, you cannot allow a queue behind the person that you're. Uh, checking all those things for. Right. Um, is it going to work? Uh, I think, you know, if having gone through what I've gone through there, I think your listeners will be able to make their own minds up very quickly mm. that uh, it, it, it'll be a miracle if it works the way some people intend it to work. Okay. Would you be able to use the one ticket in two different places? I, I mean, what if I bought a ticket to go to one place, but I realised the girls were going to a different place, so I wanted to go there. No, 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 the, no. the ticket uh, the ticket will be venue-specific. Um, and, and look, the one thing we know about the way um, Irish people uh, treat this kind of thing, mm. you'll have three or four people, you'll have three or four people out together, mm. and two or three of them will have tickets, and the fourth one won't. Uh, and they'll ask you, look, we'll, 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 we'll talk our way in. Uh, and there'll be an element of that. Mm. We can see, we can, you know, that's the way we operate as a nation. And that's the kind of stuff that's going to have to be controlled in the midst of all this mayhem. Okay. Uh, better with it or without it, do you think? I mean, given what you heard there from Mike Ryan, uh, that there are things more important than us going to pubs and nightclubs uh, and uh, that we need to do everything to protect uh, the vulnerable people uh, from catching uh, this disease. Uh, Is it better that you have these restrictions in place and that you're allowed to open? There's there's no dispute with what Mike Ryan says. Absolutely not. And we have been very clear from day one that in all of this, uh, public health is, is, uh, is paramount. But government have made the decision uh, to open uh, nightclubs. That's the decision that they have made. Uh, We don't actually believe that the restrictions that they're putting in place in respect of that is going to enhance public safety. But the one thing we have always said and we will continue to say is that we will advise our members to comply with the regulations, to comply with the the law as it is. We We may not agree with it, uh, but that's that's not our remit. Our our remit is to make sure that our members know what the regulations are, know what the law is. We will advise them to abide by it. But as I say, when laws and regulations become incoherent, it's very difficult to ensure compliance. 
Okay. Porik, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed. I think this is uh, going to be a topic of uh, conversation for the coming days, uh, but uh, you're looking for two weeks uh, in order to iron out uh, some of uh, those problems uh, and indeed uh, to be able to answer some of uh, those questions about how it's going to work. Uh, It's not clear yet that that's going to happen. Uh, It seems as though the government is intent to roll this out from Thursday. But thanks to Porik Cribben, Chief Executive of the Vintners Federation of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Irish anti-war movement is uh, to hold a vigil outside of Dáil Éireann this evening. Let's speak uh, to Jim Roach, PRO, with uh, the Irish anti-war movement. Good morning to you, Jim, uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, the idea is uh, to lobby the Irish government, specifically Minister Simon Coveney as the Minister for Foreign Affairs, uh, to put pressure on the British government to release uh, Julian Assange. Correct. My, Michael, thanks again for, for having me on. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and by the way, it's it's organised by a group of us, uh, Free Assange Ireland, the Irish Anti-War Movement and other groups. Uh, and we, we did a series of events last Saturday around the country in 20 different locations. And today we're, we're focusing on the doll. And it, uh, this coincides with um, the appeal hearing, which is starting in London today. It's been held today and tomorrow. And the appeal has been brought by the US government against the decision by a British court not to extradite Julian Assange, uh, WikiLeaks journalist Julian Assange, to the US. So the appeal is brought by the, the, the Biden administration, if you like. Um, and we're calling uh, on, like, the reason we're having it at the doll, really, is it's a point of focus anyway. But we, we, we want to, we're, it's part of a, a, an awareness-generating campaign which includes a, an open letter. We, a group of us, uh, um, sorry, um, a series, a number of anti-war and social um, um, justice activists have written to uh, Minister Simon Coveney as Minister for, for Foreign Affairs to use Ireland's position on the United Nations Security Council to raise the issue of Julian Assange. Mm and the call call for his immediate release. There is no case against him. Uh, This is a case against journalism uh, and against the notion of a free press and an investigative press. And many of the things you talk about on on your great program would be compromised if if they succeed in doing this. Okay. There is no there, there's no case against Julian Assange. He has now been imprisoned in Belmarsh Prison for over two years. Well well in, into mm. the third year now. Horrific conditions, solitary confinement. His last years in the uh, Ecuadorian embassy were horrific as well. He, he he was denied human rights. He was spied on. His visitors were spied on. He was uh, limited in who could go to see him. It's a total of 10 years, if you like, of incarceration here. Mm. So this, we are, this is a human rights case. It's a case for journalism and, and publishers to publish the kind of information that the public need to know. And the reason, I'll finish here and let you back in, the reason um, that, that the, the, the US and Britain are punishing him is simply because he exposed the war crimes in Afghanistan, in Iraq, mm. about Guantanamo Bay, about the CIA shenanigans, etc. So that's the reason. Okay, but is it is it a question for the United Nations, or is it not a question for the British courts, which have already ruled? And this is an appeal against that High Court decision by the American administration. Well, this is a is a global campaign in in Australia, America, Britain, many countries in Europe, including here in Ireland. We're we're calling on on whatever way we can to to put pressure on. 
uh, uh, the, the British and American governments to release him. Uh, I, I believe it is. A, I, I think Ireland um, Ireland is a defender generally of human rights around the world. It's a defender, a defender of social justice. Therefore, I think it would be right and proper to raise it at the UN, to raise a uh, concern about the way this uh, journalist and publisher has been treated. He hasn't done anything wrong except expose war crimes. And that's why he's been punished. Mm. So I, I, we, we, we will use, you know, whatever platforms we can to, to raise the case. And we think that the, um, um, that the government should speak up uh, on, on his behalf. OK, well, he may have been locked up as such for the last 10 years. Uh, if he was to be extradited, he'd face a, a sentence of 175 years. Uh, but you couldn't expect the British government, whatever about uh, interference from the United Nations, to interfere with uh, the workings of uh, the courts. Uh, that would cross a, a line, wouldn't it? Well, no, there's all, but like so, so much has gone on. Um, the, the, so for example, the U.S. admitted under oath as far as that, that it had found no evidence that he'd harmed anyone. They've used the FBI with uh, this informant in um, um, Iceland. Uh, they affected, like the FBI, pressurized him to 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 speak falsely about Julian Assange, which he has since retracted. Um, and of course, then there's the recent media allegations about the about the CIA. Um, actually planning to abduct or and or kill Julian Assange. So on on those grounds alone, but you know, but also the fact that the, the CIA spied on Julian Assange's defense counsel, that is enough to throw this case out. You know, this case should not even even be in the courts at this stage. It should have been thrown out by the British court because of all this. And this has been exposed uh over the like you know, recent months and years that this was happening. So this is a kind of show trial. Uh, it, it has no justification whatsoever. And I, I know, like, I have heard this argument before that we have to respect the law and stuff, mm. you know. But there, there are so many things gone on uh, and so many um, uh, nefarious things have been done that uh, brings the law into disrepute here. There is no case against them. And mm. the... The, basically, the the powers that be, if you like, have are, have tried to swindle him. You know, uh, and anyway, mm. so uh, we will we do, will do, have do, our does the case against him in Sweden uh, of sexual assault yeah. matter, or does that not matter anymore no, because the charges were dropped? Anymore, and mm. I, no harm talking about it. Mm. Uh, again, when you talk to a lot of people, that's all they know about, and that is partly because of the way. The certain media have, have portrayed this. He he was accused of um, sexual misdemeanors with two women. It, they never actually brought the case in the end, but the case was dropped. He was willing to go and face those charges. He was not willing to go to Sweden, however, because he was for fear of extradition, and that's why he went into uh, sought refuge yeah. in the Ecuadorian yeah. embassy. Yeah. So, okay. so all that needs to come out. You know, th- th- that is no longer an issue, it, it, and uh, the. In a way, and I, I respect you for raising it, but, uh, you know, in, in a way, like loads of people don't know, this is about his journalism. He has been tried because of his journalism, because he exposed war crimes. That's it. Okay. And this, this is a case of human rights, and it's a case for a free press. And just one last thing, Michael. Mm. The implications of this, the implications of this for journalists, for the notion of a free press, for the people's right to know, are huge. 
if the US and British government succeed in continue to punish Julian and if he is extradited it will be absolutely appalling and th- th- there is a precedent here let's remember the uh, um, Daniel Ellsberg uh, back in the 1960s where he uh, the Pentagon Papers and uh, he when he realised what was happening, I mean, he was working for the government and he saw what was happening, that the Nixon and Kissinger administration were lying to the American people about the extent of bombing in uh, Vietnam and Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And he decided to release those. And in the end, they were published and he was vindicated. He was vindicated for what he did. So this is a very similar case. OK, you know. Jim, you're asking people to meet at half five outside of a doll, Aaron, if they want to uh, join you in that vigil. Yes. We'll leave it there, though, for the moment. Thank you, as always. Jim Roach Pirro with the Irish Anti-War Movement. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the Big Summer School has been stimulating a debate uh, since 1980, over the 41 years uh, that it's been running. It's uh, been host to many well-known names over the years, and this year is no different. Uh, in the next 10 minutes or so, uh, the 41st Big Summer School is about to get underway. Its uh, director is Dr Joe Mulholland, and the theme this year... Uh, Joe is a threatened planet. Well, I mean, we are surrounded by threats. Of course, the biggest one is still on our doorstep, uh, as we were hearing this morning from the from the statistics, the, the pandemic. And uh, we kick off with that this morning appropriately uh, at 10 o'clock. Uh, we kick off with uh, Dr. Mike Ryan, uh, one obviously a world expert in this area, uh, and uh, Professor Mary Cosgrave and and um, Kings, uh, Professor Kingsman, Kings Mills, uh, Kingston Mills. But um, the uh, other other threats are we're doing uh, obviously climate change now is again not to be escaped. Uh, the big COP is starting in Glasgow next week. Uh, we're in there today with people like uh, people like uh, John Fitzgerald, who is, I think, uh, an absolute expert in all of this field on the economic implications of it and so on and so forth, uh, and other speakers. Uh, so uh, it is a world, mm. uh, a world full of threats. And, of course, one of the threats is that the world is so still badly divided and we're not forgetting that uh, that uh, less than one percent of people own uh, uh, more than 90 percent of the world's wealth and that inequality that permeates all our societies uh, needs also to be looked at because democracy and we have a, a session on democracy is is threatened as well Mm. in various places and we have only to see this beside us in the European Union in Hungary and Poland and indeed in uh, upcoming France uh, where the extreme right are doing very well for the next year's elections Uh, uh, Mm. there's so much uh, in this program that it would 
take me in the morning to get through it. Uh, absolutely, and, uh, I, I know. And uh, I don't think you even mentioned uh, the Taoiseach uh, who will uh, close uh, the summer school uh, this year over the three days. You've uh, more than 50 contributors and so on. And as you say, you start off with Dr. Mike Ryan of uh, the World Health Organization, one of uh, the most respected medics uh, in world medicine uh, who's been talking not just about COVID, not just about the pandemic, not just uh, about issues that concern the World Health, World Health Organization, but when it comes to COVID, uh, he's also been talking about inequality uh, and indeed vaccine inequity, uh, which is as a result of the haves and have-nots. And whilst we're here worrying about boosters today, uh, there are corners of uh, the world where frontline workers have had no jab and elderly people have had no jab. People who are very sick with underlying illnesses and so on have had no jab and no prospect of getting one for some time to come as well. Yeah, that, that, that was a huge, huge uh, level of inequity and injustice and unfairness, uh, and inclu- including in our own country, including all the countries of the West as well, mm. uh, not only in the developing world. And uh, we can't go on with that kind of situation because uh, something will happen. Uh, people will uh, rise up or uh, whatever, uh, but... Uh, 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 we talk about a return to normality uh, after the pandemic, meaning that we can go back to our everyday jobs and our everyday habits. And that's very fine. Mm. We all want to do that. Uh, But uh, we need to to look at what is normality and see, uh, is this, uh, we want to go back to exactly the same world uh, that we've had and which has developed so, so unequally Mm. in the last number of years. Incidentally, uh, another speaker uh, who'll uh, be joining you uh, this weekend uh, will be of interest to many of our listeners all the way from Drogheda to New York where she's uh, the Irish ambassador to the United Nations. Geraldine Byrne-Nason uh, will be speaking to you in Lentes over the weekend as well. And I'm sure we'll be hearing uh, news clips from all of uh, the speakers over the weekend. But uh, you say that we can't go on this way. Uh, is there not always... Uh, a sense of uh, threat or disorder in the world. I mean, if you go back to when you started back in 1980, uh, I imagine around that time people were talking about nuclear power wouldn't have been long after Carnesore Point and that sort of thing. Uh, And indeed, throughout all of the decades, there's always climate risk, uh, whether that was the ozone layer in the 80s and 90s or the climate uh, change that is happening today or some of uh, the war or famine that takes place. There's always problems in the world, isn't there? Well, of course. I mean, there's no no perfection, of course. But uh, that doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't be trying to change the world as best we can with good governance and fair governance governance and a, a, a proper democratic system that is uh, uh, unfair, that is fair and uh, and looks after people at all levels uh, and uh, you don't have that if you take the United States stuff you know the 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 shocking inequalities that we don't have thank goodness but uh uh, this is unacceptable, and it cannot last, really. Uh, so uh, all, I think a lot of things are coming together here, and I think they're coming together under climate change. I think we're going to have to change 
or, or, or habits where, where it's, it is man who is destroying uh, the, the environment, who is destroying why we've lost hundreds, thousands maybe of species of animals due to man's behavior. And uh, behind all of that, and the, it, it would seem from the scientists, and all of them now seem to be fairly unanimous, that uh, the planet on which we live is very, very threatened. And unless we do something fast, uh, it will not continue, certainly in the same way, with the same uh, capacity to give life to its inhabitants. Mm. Indeed, that seems to be the consensus uh, with uh, those uh, who have a, a better understanding of uh, that uh, threat uh, because of uh, climate change and the threat to biodiversity that's uh, taking place on our planet. And there'll be much talk of that, of course, in the coming days over in Lentees at the McGill Summer School and uh, as we go into the weekend at COP26. We'll leave it there for the moment, though, and uh, hope you've uh, a, a good session or many of them over the course of uh, the next few days. You're uh, yeah. starting at could, 10 o'clock. Could I, could yeah. I just mm. say a mm. word about about uh, booking in. Mm. It's very easy and it's very cheap. Uh, it's 20 euros for the, for the whole three days. And uh, you just go on the McGill website, uh, com and you'll see booking uh, uh, right in front of you. Okay, Dr. Joe Mulholland, Director of the McGill Summer School, thank you indeed for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to some of your comments. Uh, Tony is an RD. He says, it's not that long ago uh, that the Vintners were crying out to be allowed to reopen and uh, saying that they'd comply with any guidelines that the government came up, up with now that the guidelines are in place. All they want to do is change them. We're still in the middle of a pandemic and nightclubs by their very nature are dangerous places to be. So the guidelines are being put in place for a reason. Uh, Tony goes on to say, if uh, the vintners really do want to open, then surely it's not too much to ask to operate an electronic ticketing system that can very easily be set up. Thank you, Tony, uh, for your message on WhatsApp uh, to us uh, today. Another text uh, that comes uh, from someone who says... uh, that publicans want to have all of the fun, but without doing any of uh, the work, uh, tighten up the restrictions uh, more than they are now, uh, because uh, it seems as though all they do is complain. Uh, they've done nothing throughout this pandemic, says our texter. Lily wants to know, are we allowed to, to dance at any functions indoors? Uh, yes, Lily, uh, if you have tickets for that function, seems uh, to be the answer. Now, imagine being told to put your child into a home and go home and enjoy your other children. Uh, Well, that's uh, what uh, the parents of Jerry Maguire were advised. Uh, Jerry is on the line. He's uh, the chief executive officer of Spina Bifida Hydrocephalus Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Jerry, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. as part of as part of the awareness week, uh, and uh, maybe as part of uh, trying to raise awareness around spina bifida and hydrocephalus, uh, you'd uh, tell us a, a little bit about the conditions because they're separate conditions, aren't they? They are indeed, Michael. Yeah, spina bifida literally means split spine. It means that the, when the baby is born, the spine isn't one long uniform organ, but it's split in two. 
and requires immediate surgery to be rectified. Hydrocephalus basically is a condition where too much um, cerebral spinal fluid builds up in the in the brain, and that's only relieved by an insertion, a surgical insertion of a shunt into the into the head to discharge the the fluid from the brain. So mm. they're both pretty serious conditions to have when unborn, with obviously. Okay, uh, and serious conditions uh, to have. Uh, on their own, but you can have both at times. Some people have both. Yes, 80, 80% of children with spina bifida also have, spina, have hydrocephalus. Um, I've always balked against my own spina bifida, but I realise that I'm one of the very lucky ones that I just have spina bifida because spina bifida and hydrocephalus combined pose many, many challenges throughout life for, for children and, and adults growing up and it's, it's, it's I don't know whether I would have been able to cope with, with both disabilities uh, throughout my life Michael to be honest with you mm. <coughs> 40 babies are, are born each year in uh, this country with uh, spina bifida and uh, I'm sure they all uh, face uh, great challenges uh, but uh, this year as part of uh, the awareness week you're asking for a, a little support for anybody who has uh, this or either condition yeah, I mean, spina bifida hydrocephalus Ireland was set up in 1968 by, by parents, basically, of children with the conditions. And they just wanted a, a better life for their children. And I like to think that that's what we do in SBHI now, is just to provide a little bit of brightness in, in what come, can be a bit of a dark time, especially over the last couple of years with COVID as well. You know, mm-hmm. that a lot of our members really did take isolation to its nth degree, because they were so susceptible to the, the virus itself. So what we what we try and do is just to, as the, the campaign is called, just give a little support. We have support through respite and recreation. We have an open opportunity program. We have an education and training program. And we also have a family support service, which, which is so important to, especially to younger parents or first-time parents of children born with spina bifida. And our, and our hydrocephalus. It's a, it's a daunting journey to start out on. And our family support workers throughout the country do a wonderful job in, yeah. in supporting people at that really tricky time, you know? Yeah. And I, I take it a lot has changed uh, since you were born, Jerry, and that parents aren't advised today as they were then to put their children into homes. Yeah, people. People would be amazed. No, I'm, I mean, I'm giving away my age here, Michael, but mm-hmm. I was born in the 60s, so grew up in the 60s and 70s. But people are amazed now that, that my parents were told to literally put me away in a home and forget about me. But that was that was the common advice from a lot of consultants around that time. And, and my parents, thankfully, said no, that they wanted me to achieve an independence and achieve what potential I, I had in life. And... Um, at the risk of sounding bragging and big-headed, I, I'd like to think that from wherever they are in their heavenly home today, that they, they look down and say, geez, we made the right decision there because he has achieved his potential. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm the first person with spina bifida to be the CEO of spina bifida hydrocephalus Ireland. I'm incredibly proud of that. I've, I've left a lifetime of public service to come and, and work here. And I got those jobs not because of my disability, but because of my abilities. And that's what I want to keep getting across to our members and everybody with spina bifida and hydrocephalus.
And your, your you've acted as is not limited, you know, definitely mm. not limited. Uh, you acted as a, an advisor uh, to a government minister, a political advisor to Finian McGrath when he was the minister for discipline. That's right. Yeah, well. yeah. Mm. I mean, I never met Finian before the job was advertised. I went for the interview, and Finian obviously saw something in me, and we we stayed together for the full four years of of government, and um, I wouldn't have stay there for the full four years just because of my disability again you know it's it's seeing people's potential and not seeing their disability and that's what the awareness week is about as well mm. that you're actually seeing the person for the person rather than seeing the person for the disability mm. it's the person not by the book but by the person uh, and you're suggesting to other people to live by their abilities and not their disabilities absolutely yeah and this this applies to everybody who lives life with a disability. You know, don't define your... Society will be quick enough Mm. to define you by your disability. But don't fall into that trap yourself. Define yourself by your ability. And you'll get farther. And I have always said that dealing with a serious disability is as much in the head as it is in the body. Mm. So if you get into that mindset that, right, you've been posed a challenge, but you're not going to buckle under that challenge. And... If if I have any success in my tenure as CEO of SBHI, if I can get that message across to our members, I'll have done a good task. I take it, though, it's a, a big challenge on occasion, at least, uh, Jerry, because you are being defined by society, the same society uh, that suggested you should be locked away in a home and never seen again by your parents, let alone anybody else. And it's not that long ago uh, when we didn't see people with spina bifida or Down syndrome or autism because people were in homes. Uh, and that attitude, uh, I suppose, uh, continues I- into our thinking today to some degree and must make that challenge all the harder for people who are trying to focus on their own abilities. It absolutely, Michael. You always feel that, and I've always felt throughout my working life that I, I was trying to prove myself a little bit extra to to people who were employing me. But that that comes with the territory, you know. It's people judging the book by the cover, as I said earlier. And have I done that in the past? I'm sure I have, you know. So it's just about showing. I've always say when I talk to our younger members, there's only one person who can tell you that you can't do something, and that's yourself. And if you keep that in in mind, your potential will be absolutely unlimited. It's going to be tough, obviously, dealing with the disability, but there is light in a, in a dark tunnel, and if you achieve your potential, that tunnel will very, very quickly be ended. Okay, well... You're there to support people apart from anything else. Uh, people uh, can make contact with you uh, through the website, I think, isn't it? Through the website, sbhi.ie, and I can guarantee you any any funds that people are good enough to give us, there will not be a one red cent misplaced. We, we will plough all that money into providing services for for our members because one of the, one of the main challenges of living with spina bifida and hydrocephalus is isolation. And I'm very conscious of, of our members who have been isolated and continue to be isolated. And we just need to reach out to them. Mm. We've got 1,200 members in total. I'm sure there's more people who aren't members of our association and are still there and will still provide services to them. But it's just trying, that's one thing that I want to try and get is people with the conditions completely integrated into society.
because okay. they have as much role to play in society as anybody else. SBHI.ie. Can people donate through that uh, website as well, Jerry? Absolutely, okay, yeah, great. please do. Okay. And it would be gratefully received, Michael, I can tell you that. Excellent. Okay, SBHI. I.E. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Jerry Maguire, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of SBHI Spina Bifida Hydrocephalus Ireland. Now, we're seeing an increase in the number of COVID cases, as you know, but it's not just here. It's right across Europe. This uh, increase in, in Europe, and, and that's three weeks of uh, progressive increase. So while the overall global curve looks like it's tracking down, Europe has gone up three weeks in a row. And those, those increases are right across Europe, from Azerbaijan all the way to Ireland and the UK and in between. And we've seen, you know, some countries like uh, uh, Czechia, Georgia, Poland, Hungary, Azerbaijan with increases of over 50% from the previous week. So that, that's that's pretty serious increase. Um, the issue uh, and the, the divergence is countries with very high levels of background vaccination and particularly those countries who've got two doses of vaccine or the appropriate number of doses of vaccine into high-risk populations, uh, older persons, people with underlying conditions, uh, high-risk groups. Uh, I think you've seen that the hospitalizations and deaths don't automatically result from an increase in the number of cases, but it does pass, it does flow through. And that is uh, the good news, if there is good news, uh, that the vaccine is preventing most people from getting very sick. Fewer people in hospital and ICU, and the vaccine is preventing death for a lot of people who are catching COVID. There's good news in the sense that we're not seeing this massive increase, but it's still concerning that even in the context of relatively high levels of vaccination, without uh, and we've seen, particularly in Europe, um, uh, an understandable of this scheduled return to normal activity. And we've seen in many, many countries, you know, uh, everything is opening up, bars, nightclubs. Uh, you, you don't have to go too far from this building to see how social life has changed. And that's great. It's great that people are out. It's great that people are enjoying themselves again, getting back to work. But it also means that in that context, the, the chances that unvaccinated uh, people, you know, could be exposed to the, to this virus is real um, and uh, uh, really want to encourage uh, as many people as possible to get vaccinated if you've been offered vaccine in your country get vaccinated. It's a very clear message isn't it from Dr Mike Ryan of the World Health Organisation get vaccinated. Remember even if you are vaccinated especially if you're vaccinated and have an underlying condition it's not absolute protection you just need to remain cautious you're very you have huge protection in the vaccine especially against hospitalization and death but like any protection it's not 100% so people still need to take care of their own exposure risk. Um, and just be that little bit cautious. We're not out of this yet. We're not out of it yet, indeed. That's Dr. Mike Ryan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we heard a, a very clear message uh, from Dr. Mike Ryan of the World Health Organization before the break. They're telling you to get vaccinated. If you want to protect yourself from COVID 19, get vaccinated if a vaccine is available to you. Vaccines are available to everybody in this country. And he's very clear get vaccinated uh, to reduce the risk of getting uh, COVID. Uh, And if you have been vaccinated, you're not uh, immune from the virus. He says, take care of your risk, uh, the exposure that you have to the virus uh, and make sure that you manage that best you can. So if you don't have to drink 
beside someone who hasn't been vaccinated, why do you have to work beside someone if uh, they've decided not to get vaccinated? Uh, It's not the case in some places in Australia and New Zealand. uh, They have uh, no jab, no job approach. Uh, And it's one that is being considered here. Louise O'Reilly is Sinn Féin TD for Fingal and she's on the line. And a very good morning to you. And as your party's spokesperson on workers' rights, what do you make of no jab, no job? Uh, Because uh, there's a balance of rights in all of this. There has to be a balance, Michael. And I I have immense sympathy in this regard for employers who are trying to do the right thing because obviously they have an obligation to provide their workers with a safe place to work equally. Uh, we all have an obligation under the Health, Safety and Welfare at Work Act uh, to, to take reasonable precautions for ourselves. But we also have a right to have uh, sensitive medical information kept private. So there has to be a balance um, in the absence of a right to insist on vaccination, which I don't think anyone is, 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 looking at, uh, is looking at here. I think what we need to do is look at how we can make workplaces as safe as possible. So at the moment, the, the, the rules still or the, the advice still is work from home unless it's for essential business. Now, look, anyone with two eyes in their head can see that people are back uh, working in the office um, to, to a huge extent. So then you've got to look at in the office, can you ensure that you minimise the number of people or in the workplace, can you ensure you minimise the number of people who are there? Can they maintain physical distancing? You know, we mm. uh, there's a report out recently there in relation to antigen testing in meat factories and it actually showed that antigen testing played a very key role in ensuring that not only was COVID detected early, but it actually protected everybody else in the workplace. Now, meat factories are a very particular work environment. They're very conducive to the spread of COVID. Maybe you could put other protections into an office. But I think, you know, the the employers and the, the workers together through their trade unions, if you're a member of a trade union and if you're not, it won't surprise you to hear me saying this, Michael. I think people mm. should join their union, get active in their union. It's the, the best chance you have of having a, a really strong voice at work. But there needs to be discussions between the workers and the employers to ensure everyone wants the same thing. Everybody wants to be safe at yeah. work. Can you, can, um, can you ask somebody if they're drunk? Can you ask somebody if they're drunk? Yeah. Um, I'm not certain that you can. No. I'm not certain. Or, or stoned. Yeah, and indeed, I think the the law doesn't allow for for that kind of test. And I mean, you can ask a question, but I, I you know, mm. it's, and it's not medical information, but it becomes if you, you know, if you require someone. I mean, to you'll hear a pe- you'll hear of people being sacked for coming into work drunk or under the influence of something or uh, acting in some other dangerous way. Uh, and many of us would think that it's a danger to us that people would be coming into work if they haven't been vaccinated. So, uh, why can't that be acted on? Well, at the moment, because uh, an employer doesn't have the right to ask a person um, because it is considered sensitive medical information. So what we need to see is both employers and unions and and workers' representatives focusing on what can be done Mm. to make the workplace safe. But is the the solution not to give a a COVID cert to anybody who is COVID immune, which means that they've had COVID or that they've been vaccinated, or to somebody who a, a doctor says... Uh, cannot be vaccinated or should not be vaccinated, that a a, a work cert would be given to them and and that would rule out uh, any inquiring about medical information and personal sensitive information. And that can be done voluntarily, um, but... It, it can't be done at the moment because it is uh, it is sensitive and uh, personal medical information. Mm. But, I don't want but it's to mad, isn't it? After, after 18 months I, of a pandemic. I want to see our workplaces 
safe. Mm, I want to ensure yeah. that. And I mean, I actually brought in a piece of legislation that would have designated COVID-19 as an automatically notifiable disease yeah. within mm. the workplace, which is a separate kind of category. Mm. It's not in that category. The government didn't support the, the, the legislation. So that's unfortunate. So, I mean, I did want to take action on this. I want to see it put into a separate category. But mm. for as long as it's not, and for as long as people are coming back to work, we do need to see, you know, risk assessments, return to work protocols, the mm. absolute maximum that can be done to protect people in the workplace. It's mad though, isn't it? You can't go dancing if you don't have a COVID cert, but you can go into a nursing home uh, uh, as a visitor or as a member of staff and possibly kill somebody or or, or because you're there result uh, in uh, their ill health or death. And, you know, that's a very extreme example, uh, you know, that you could possibly kill somebody. I think if you're looking at a workplace, that needs to be kept safe. And I know in a medical setting, in a hospital setting, it is different. They have risk assessment tools that they can deploy because they are a separate type of workplace. But just for the people who are going back into the office or mm. back into their workspace in the next uh, in the next couple of weeks and, you know, some who have returned already, there is an obligation on the employer to provide a safe place to work. They can do an awful lot. of things they can't do, right? That's, mm. that's fair enough. But they can do an awful lot to ensure that they stagger the return to work, that they have the minimum number of, of staff present, that people work from home, which is yeah. still the advice, work from but home. But the HSE says that it's looking at ways of introducing this sort of, of policy. Is that something that you'd support? I think that they need to talk to the, the relevant trade unions and figure out something that works. Like, there has to be a balance here, Michael. Mm. That's, the, that's the issue. You have to balance the, you know, the, the right that people have to privacy, but also the right to a safe workplace. Mm. You know? And I, I don't think that this is something that is a one-size-fits-all approach because it's very mm. different working in an office than it is working in a factory. Well, very different working in a factory than yeah. it is working in a hospital. At the same time, whether you're in, a, whether, whether you're in an office... Been success but whether you're in an office or a hospital, you don't want somebody coming in swinging the machine. Or, or firing a, a, a machine gun or whatever the case may be. Uh, I mean, these are things uh, that threaten us. Uh, they risk our lives, as does somebody uh, who has COVID and isn't acting to protect themselves. Oh, any person who has COVID and isn't acting to protect themselves is putting other people that they work with at risk, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, I would hope that people wouldn't be going into work if they had if they had symptoms. But again, you know, that means that we need to focus on what can be done. So, I mean, there's no point in talking about what can't be done for the moment. What can be done to maximise the health, safety and welfare of people mm. at work is that they can put in place the return to work protocols, they can use antigen testing, they can use physical distancing in the workplace, and they can minimise the number of people on site at any given time. Mm. Those things should be done proactively to, to make the workplace as safe as it can possibly be. I was disappointed we, the government didn't designate mm. COVID-19 as a notifiable disease, but and that, that would have changed things, I think, substantially because it moves it into a different category. If it was a notifiable disease, uh, would it mean you'd be able to say to somebody, you can't work here unless you get vaccinated? No, it would mean that uh, there were there were protocols that are put in place to deal with it the same way as you would deal with TB and yeah. uh, and, and other notifiable illnesses. And I think it would have represented a step change, but it, it wasn't done. So we do need to focus. I'm, I'm really conscious of people listening to this who are heading back into work and mm. they're thinking to themselves, am I going to be uh, Am I going to be at risk? At the moment, COVID is circulating in the community. We know that certain types of behaviour are more risky than others. So it's up to the employers working with the workers to ensure that the workplaces are made yeah. as safe as they can possibly be. And that's be. the point, isn't it? Because if you have to go to work, you have to go to work. Uh, you don't have to go to a, a nightclub. Uh, but if you're going into work and somebody isn't vaccinated, uh, that increases 
is your exposure or potential exposure and your risk or your potential risk to catching this disease, which can have dire consequences for some people. Absolutely. And that's why I would suggest the, the wide use of antigen testing um, as a surveillance. But I presume you can refuse that, can't you? You can. Yeah. Uh, you can. Um, you know, but I do think it's... Uh, if they can it do it elsewhere, why, why, why can't we prevent people who are not vaccinated from going into work or into all public places, stop them from going into the libraries and the gyms or parks or whatever the case may be? Uh, and if they want to do that, well, then there's the uh, option of getting vaccinated. Everybody has the opportunity to get vaccinated in this country. Everybody has. There are some people who can't. Um, yes, I, I spoke to a woman. But they can be exempted. So that, that can be dealt yeah, with. No, no. She had her first dose and yeah. she had such a violent reaction to it. Her doctor had mm. said under no circumstances. Now, and she was sobbing down the phone to me because all she wants is uh, is to get her life back and she mm. feels like she can't. So, I mean, it, it is. Uh, there are categories of people who absolutely cannot get vaccinated. That's fair enough. But for people who won't, we have shown with the high vaccination rates that actually education, making it available and talking to people has worked with the vast, vast majority mm, of mm. people. And I think that that's the way to go. So I think the government need, and I, I know that they are, and I really yeah. welcome Oh, and it's great. Thousands of people. 2,000 a day are coming forward now. Exactly. And which they're is targeting great. certain yeah. groups mm. with a particular campaign, which I think is the way to go, to mm. bring everybody in. And then we also have but, to But if people, if people are getting vaccinated because they can't go to a nightclub, which seems to be the case, uh, why don't we take the same approach and say, you can't go to work if you don't get vaccinated? And you'll soon see people queuing up. Yeah, well, I think there, there's a reason there's, there's a reason why that can't happen because obviously people have a, a constitutional right to earn a living. Um, but having said that, there are a huge number of things that can be done to make workplaces safe. And those are the things that we should be focusing on now. You know, ensuring that we use antigen testing, that we have physical distancing, that we have the minimum number of people on site and that there's a return to work protocol in place. Okay. And also for people who have symptoms, like for God's sake, don't go into work. You know, I mean, it, it should be a very, very simple thing. Mm-hmm. If you have symptoms of COVID, don't go into work. If you have been exposed, do a test, do a PCR test or an antigen test. You know, people need to take a bit of responsibility for this themselves, you know, and, and ensure that their co-workers are kept safe and that they don't do anything that puts their co-workers um, at risk. OK, while you're with us, talk about Viagogo and some of uh, these other sites uh, that are, are selling tickets for the Ireland-Portugal match. People are, are very upset and rightly so. They are absolutely furious, Michael, um, because they, they were cute. I was talking to uh, a guy yesterday who had three devices on the go, his mobile phone, um, uh, another phone in the house and his laptop. He was queuing uh, on all three of them for tickets for the game. He lost out and less than an hour later, he saw the tickets on sale online for three times the value. I understand now they've gone up to four times the face value. So this obviously is driving people up the wall and I can completely understand why. So the legislation that was brought in in July um, by the the, the, the Tanishta and the leader of Fine Gael, Leo Varadkar, was supposed to prevent this from happening. But in order for the legislation to kick in, either the organisers or the owners of the venue have to designate either the event, which in this case is the Ireland-Portugal game, or the venue, which is the Lansdowne Road Stadium. Um, They have to designate that to be covered under the Act. This wasn't done. So there is a clause in the legislation that says where that's not done, that the minister himself, which in this case would be the Tanish Delio Bradker, can step in and do it. And for whatever reason, and I'm I'm really curious to hear from the Tanish as to why he didn't do it, he didn't use that power that was available to him. Now, I know that he has instructed um, his officials now 
to go and meet with uh, with the FAI, which I suppose is a, is a case of better late than never. But what I'd want to know is why they weren't being proactive about this. I mean, like I, I'm not a soccer fan. Like you, you may know that I I don't follow I don't follow football. But even I knew that this game was going to be sold out. I mean, the FAI were tweeting the 24 hours beforehand get your tickets get mm. in get online this is going to be a sellout we're predicting a sellout so they knew it was going to be a sellout at that stage is the time for the legislation to have kicked in and for the government to, to have checked did the FAI approach them is it a designated venue or a designated event and if not they should have stepped in at that stage because that's what the legislation provides for. It provides a safety net. And the end result of this now is a lot of disappointed fans who are looking online at tickets that are way out of their price range now. The tickets maybe were affordable when they went on sale four mm. times the price. Who has that kind of money? They're looking at this now and uh, and they are actually furious. So okay. there's tickets going on sale for a rugby game, the, the Ireland versus New Zealand game coming up in the next couple of weeks. I am really, I'm urging the government to step in and ensure that they use the legislation if the IRFU don't designate this game or indeed the Lansdowne Road uh, stadium, if they don't designate the stadium or the game, then the government really do need to step in. I mean, you can't have fans getting gouged like this. It's just really unfair. No, that's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Thank you, Adele, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, that's uh, Sinn Féin's uh, spokesperson on Workers' Rights, Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Louise O'Reilly, who's a TD for Dublin Fingal. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, climate change is uh, certainly a topic uh, for conversation with the introduction of uh, the climate budgets uh, this week, but it's one that is going to be to the fore over the course of uh, the next few weeks uh, with uh, COP26 starting in Glasgow on Saturday, and this will bring decision makers from across uh, the world to the United Nations Climate Change Conference in the hope of accelerating uh, the Paris agreement. Demonstrations are to take place uh, in line with COP26 on the 6th of November and here there'll be demonstrations in Dublin, Cork, Galway, Limerick and Belfast. They're being organised by the COP26 Coalition Ireland group and we're joined now by Fiona O'Malley uh, from uh, that group and a very good morning to you Fiona and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. What is it that you're demonstrating against? So the COP26 Coalition Ireland, we're calling on the public to get out of the streets on November 6th to show our, our, our support for real action on climate justice. And we're protesting against the government, our government and the international government's um, inadequate action on tackling um, the climate crisis. And a few weeks ago, um, Taoiseach Michal Martin gave a really powerful speech at the UN Security Council on climate change. But really, it's entirely unconvincing when you look at this government and the last government's record on climate action. We don't need more speeches. We need real action. Um, And that's one of the things that we're protesting um, and marching for on the 6th of November. And we really encourage everyone to to join us on that march. Mm. We'll be going from midday from the Garden of Remembrance marching to uh, the Dáil. Um, so we're calling on, on the government to, to step up and to deliver real action. And real action means plant, planting tens of millions of trees as soon as possible, a ban on new fossil fuel infrastructure in Ireland and along our coastlines, and rapidly increasing our efforts to turn to a greener and a more sustainable uh, future and and economy. Um, and the government's 
I suppose statements on climate change would be far more persuasive if they were matched with with real action. Uh, climate Case Ireland is, is the group that I'm part of and will be attending attending the march on the sixth to support this national and international call okay. on governments to step up. Everybody is uh, very well intentioned, uh, but uh, then they realise uh, that if you want to get to the top of the mountain, you have to climb the mountain. It's a little bit like that at times, isn't it? It is, yeah. And one of the things that we're pushing for is a just transition. So whilst there will be sacrifices in, in every sector to to reduce our carbon emissions, we're also encouraging the government to incentivise people to do this with grants and with tax breaks um, because time really is running out for, for the planet and for world leaders, uh, including the Irish government. Um, so to get those targets and to reach those targets as you had alluded to, to get to the top of the mountain we'll say mm. um, radical cuts in emissions are needed to ensure that we reach the target of keeping global warming below 1.5 uh, degrees and I think the COP26 Ireland uh, coalition has also emphasised that the government will need to ensure the emission reductions is done in a manner that protects the most vulnerable and the livelihood and conditions of workers as part of a just transition. Okay. Uh, at the same time, though, how do you uh, achieve a just transition and get people to change their behaviour? If you put up the price of petrol, for example, uh, and uh, uh, give uh, that back to people somehow, uh, well then, how do you get them to go to electric cars if they can't afford electric cars? Yeah, so that's one of the things um, that we are also, um, I suppose, proposing is that I know that the government has made efforts to improve and to incentivise people uh, to go electric and they're certainly increasing um, their electric charging points across um, the country. They've also really increased um, and improved the the Greenway. I think the Green Party is putting a million euro um, a day into cycling infrastructure across the country, which is good, and we would encourage a lot more of that and to ramp that kind of stuff up. But we would also encourage, um, for example, as you said, switching to electric, we would encourage um, more grants um, and better tax incentives for people to do that, to do that, because people do care about the environment. People are are conscious of the dangers of climate change now. In fact, climate anxiety is one of the things that um, teachers are reporting an increase on. So certainly young people are very anxious about about climate change and the impact it will have on their generation, Mm. quite rightly. Um, But we need to to make this achievable and this transition fair to to all sectors of society. And the best way to do that is with will be with incentives, tax incentives, grant incentives, um, to encourage people to, to be as green as, as, as they want to be for, for their own sake and for the future of the planet. And how, how do you fund that successfully? Because I think at the moment, for example, like they're putting a, a euro or thereabouts on the price of a bag of coal. Uh, but you're going to have to pay that extra euro if you want to heat your house if all you have is a coal fire and if it costs 50,000 or 60,000 euro to retrofit your home. Yeah, well, there are grants for retrofitting um, homes and for insulating homes and making homes uh, greener for sure. 
Um, then there are things obviously like solar panels, people want to switch to electric. Um, and I suppose even though, again, there are grants for solar panels and, and for uh, insulation and grants for restoring houses, um, there is certainly money up front, as, as you say. Um, mm. But we would, we would encourage um, the, the government to incentivise more people to make that more affordable uh, switch because, as, as we had said previously, um, the, the change to, to being greener and more sustainable and getting on the top of that mountain can cost a lot. So we would encourage the government via the Exchequer to, um, to foot a lot of that bill because we are being penalised um, with our emissions anyways. Yeah. So if we, if we go above certain emissions, we will be penalised. So what's the point in our government via the Exchequer, via the taxpayer, paying for these fines when we're going above our, our climate targets when that money to reduce that targets would be better spent if it was pumped into things like better cycle lanes, if it was pumped into things like people retrofitting their houses or um, getting more solar panels on, on their roofs. Um, it would just be a wiser choice and more sustainable uh, in the long term and most importantly it would transition us to a greener future and a greener economy. Okay, well, COP26 starts on Saturday. You'll be uh, holding your protests uh, across uh, the country on uh, the 6th of November. But uh, thanks uh, for joining us this morning, Fiona. Nice to talk Thank to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you indeed. That's uh, Fiona O'Malley of COP26 Coalition Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, it's uh, two months uh, since uh, the Americans pulled out of Afghanistan and people there now are finding it next to impossible to get out of uh, the country with Amnesty International reporting last week that uh, the borders are closed to, to most people trying to get out of Afghanistan if uh, they don't have uh, documentation saying it's like an obstacle course trying to get out of uh, the country at the moment. Staying behind uh, is a very grim prospect uh, life is very difficult for most people with about a third of the population facing problems in terms of securing food for themselves and their families. That's according to Concern. Dominic McSorley is a Chief Executive Officer with Concern Worldwide and a very good morning to you Dominic and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. It was bad before the Americans left, before the United Nations left. Uh, there were nearly 20 million people depending on humanitarian assistance then. It's worse now and it's about to get worse going into the winter I take it. Yeah, and thanks for that. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, well, certainly there was a lot of focus, I suppose, on uh, the American withdrawal. You're right to point that out. I mean, uh, this is a country that's had four decades of war, three million people uh, forced to leave their homes internally, many of them displaced. Um, and then Afghanistan in the last number of years has been going through a climate crisis. Uh, it's just experienced a widespread drought and 40% of the crops were lost as a result of this. So those various factors have now left this country spiralling into a really catastrophic uh, situation. Um, and certainly with the communities that we're working with in the north and the northeast, I mean, they certainly don't have the means uh, to get up and move and to try and cross the border. At this point, they barely have the means to survive, and that's why we've been scaling up our operations significantly. Mm. You see people queuing up for food. Uh, it looks impossible. Uh, will it be impossible at some stage? Uh, is there a prospect of famine? 
Well, I think that is uh, World Food Programme um, six months ago would estimated that 13 million people were in what they classified as phase three and four uh, in terms of food insecurity. That means that um, 13 million people already had large food caps and we were all seeing signs of increased uh, malnutrition. And women in particular and young girls were probably being forced into kind of negative coping mechanisms. Now, they just revised that figure last week. Uh, it's gone from 13 million to 23 million, which is a staggering increase. You know, I think there was a whole halt to the aid business uh, during the conflict prior to the Taliban taking over. And then now we're restarting. I think on the positive side, mm. um, uh, agencies like us, Concern, and many of the other ones have very experienced Afghan uh, professionals on the ground. Mm. Um, who are back out working again. We have permission from the Taliban. We also have permission for women who work with concern uh, to go back out there working. So really it's about getting the resources in and scaling yeah. up. And that's why you're speaking to us today to uh, appeal for help in doing that. And God knows you're doing Trojan work uh, out there and elsewhere for that matter. But that, that figure of 23 million people who are finding it difficult to feed themselves, uh, that's an incredible amount of people in the first instance, but uh, in terms of the percentage of the population, what's the population of uh, Afghanistan? About 40 million, is it? Correct. So it's, it's, it's just over 50% of the population. Yeah. Now, I mm. think one of the things I think mm. is World Food Programme has this massive logistics uh, operation that is coming, uh, coming in from various uh, neighbouring countries uh, and delivering food. Um, and uh, But... Uh, you know, this needs to come in quickly. Our focus very much is protecting people in winter. Mm. Now, we're working in areas that are high altitude uh, and the temperatures plummet uh, to well below minus. So the kind of things we're focusing on is um, cooking utensils, solar lamps, uh, blankets for families, getting those out. We're also looking at kind of the livelihoods. Uh, we're distributing chickens, but not just chickens, food, um, hen houses so they can construct these uh, will help with income and then we're employing lots of people on this kind of cash for work schemes where they're digging reservoirs uh, they're improving the land as well as planting of trees and they're getting direct cash in so I think these, mm. this is our contribution this is really trying to provide people um, not just for the additional food supplies but actually the means to kind of stand on their own Okay, uh, your operation uh, is a significant one in that you're trying to help over nine thousand people. Correct. Yeah, and you know, I, I was in I was in Afghanistan after nine eleven. It was another really difficult time, and in many ways, very similar with the borders closed and this stuff. I, I, I think they. It's important to remember. You know, these are extraordinary resilient people um, who have a really strong sense of family. Um, and extraordinary hospitality. I think anybody who's had the privilege of working in that country comes away with this uh, this sense of decency uh, and the sense of people just simply trying to get on with their right. lives. Uh, and, and really, this is just an opportunity to try and ensure that they don't slip down further. Yeah, well, God knows there's been uh, enough to contend with uh, in recent years. Uh, what's the terrain like? Uh, I mean, if you're talking about uh, trying to get these items to people uh, at high altitudes, uh, how difficult is that? It's extremely difficult, and I think that's part of the race, is getting into particularly these isolated villages that get cut off during the winter. So very much we have our trucks on the road um, and our teams on the road 
uh, and suppliers coming in to dis- to deliver as much as we can. But, you know, we've before, and we will do again if we have to, we'll end up moving stuff by horses and mules. Nice. We've had to do that before because this, this, is, uh, this is a landscape like no other. Mm. I mean, there's had no development uh, in many of these forests. You feel like you're going back mm. into almost biblical times. There's so little infrastructure. But it doesn't mean to say that you can't get things in. Okay. Well, people can help you if they wish uh, through the Concern website. Uh, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Can I just say yep. a huge thank you because we launched this appeal in September. Times are tough here and we really mm. appreciate uh, the support we've been getting to date. Okay. Well, I know people are always happy to help Concern. Thank you indeed. Dominic McSorley, Chief Executive, Do- Executive Officer with Concern Worldwide. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.